Brought to you by the all-new 2014 Toyota Corolla. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark, and there's Charles W. Chuck Bryant, and uh, Jerry's over there. So this is Stuff You Should Know, the podcast. Jerry with her face tattoos. Hipster. (laughs) Maori wannabe. Yeah. Maori? I thought it was Maori. (laughs) Maori. Yeah, we just looked up the pronunciation. I was sure Chuck was right because he picked this article. But it looks like Maori. It seems like that should be an acceptable pronunciation as well. I know. And, you know, we have lots of uh, Kiwi fans there in New Zealand. Yeah, hey, everybody. And so this is for you. And if you're not from New Zealand... (laughs) All the other ones you shouldn't be listening to. Just this one. uh, If you're not from New Zealand, then I think you'll enjoy it anyway because... um, Indigenous tribes are interesting. Plus, those of you outside New Zealand won't know how much stuff we got wrong. That's right. Yeah. So, Chuckers. Yes. Were you familiar with the uh, Maori ahead of time? Did you know most of this stuff from this article? No. I I had seen the movie Once Were Warriors, and that was my introduction to them. Is that right? Many years ago, yeah. That was the one that won a bunch of Academy Awards, right? Or I'm thinking of Whale Rider. You're thinking of Whale Rider. But, um, yeah, Once Were Warriors is not... (laughs) A feel-good movie. Is it a documentary? No, it's a it's um, just a regular narrative feature, but it's uh, it shows sort of the dark side of the modern Maori with uh, like propensities for violence and crime and alcoholism. So basically, it's like I guess anyone who hears the story in the U.S. will be like, "Hmm, this sounds familiar." An indigenous group, yeah, pushed around and almost completely <laughs> obliterated by uh, Europeans. Yeah, and, and then later on, perhaps suffering from uh, alcoholism and and uh, further marginalization, trying to hang on to a culture that is not uh, well, it exists, but I don't want to spoil anything. Well, I think okay. <laughs> so my my uh, the extent that I came to figure out my awareness of the Maori um, culture was my fi- familiarity with Mike Tyson's face tattoo. Yeah. And um, the the fact that there's such a thing as tribal tattoos and that those are mostly rooted in Maori uh, tattooing. And in fact, the Maori, they didn't necessarily come up with tattooing. They're directly descended from the people who did, but they had a specific kind of tattoo, a specific method of tattooing, I should say, that kind of um, gains them the status of the toughest tattoo people around and that they used not needles, but chisels, yeah, to to do their tattoos, which are called the tamoko, yeah, tamoko, two words, I think so, yeah. No, I mean it's two words. I'm just... Yeah, moko is the face tattoo specifically, I think. Right. Um, there's another type of tattoo that's not quite as um, spiritual as we'll find out, called kirituhi, and um, that's kind of more like the the tribal bands you see around people's arms and things like that. Yeah, like if you're a hipster. With Moco face tattoos, and you're from um, Michigan, then you're going to be frowned upon by real Maori people because you shouldn't have a Moco on your face. No. You should have the other one because that's not as sacred. Right. You know what I'm saying? I know what you're saying. And the I've question seen, is do the people who have these face tattoos know what you're saying? I don't know. I've seen these white dudes with it and I'm just like, you know, you're not Maori. Well, I was when I was looking up like Mike Tyson Maori face tattoo, 
like a whole slew of articles came up about how he was his visa was canceled before a trip to New Zealand. I was like, oh, really? oh man, was it because he had the face tattoo? No, criminal past, hmm. which makes sense. Yeah, and I don't his I don't think his is a moco. I think it's just a face tattoo. Yeah. Okay, let's get into it, man. Yeah, because there's much more to it than face tattoos. Yeah. So the Maori are credited as being the first um, settlers of uh, New Zealand. Mm-hmm. The thing is, there's a lot of controversy around this, I should say. In academic circles, it's um, typically accepted, widely accepted, yeah. in, that it's been proven that the Maori were the original settlers of New Zealand. Right. Um, there are other circles that are like, no, there's, there's, there's evidence that they're not. The Maori's own oral history says that there are people there before them. There's right. evidence here or there. But for the most part, uh, if you believe that in academic circles, you are considered fringe dweller. Right. Sure. So for the most part, the the generally accepted idea is that the Maori uh, settled New Zealand from Polynesia. Yeah. Somewhere between uh, 1280 and 1450 A.D. Yeah. And they came over on canoes, on ocean canoes mm-hmm. uh, that they still use today. And um, they supposedly came from a mythical land called Hawaii. But um, these days, scholars will say what that probably is, is a combo of some real places Um Tahiti, Samoa, and the Cook Islands. Yeah, tomato, tomato. Exactly. But they got to New Zealand, and they, they named it uh, uh, Oturoa. And there's a lot of pronunciations in here we might not get exactly right, by the I, way. I think that was one. <laughs> I think that might be right, actually. Oturoa? I'm going to say the A is silent. I don't think so. It's capitalized, even. <laughs> that means land of the long white cloud. Right. And in other words, it's the Maori name for New Zealand. Yeah. Um, and we should say that when the Maori arrived, they uh, they arrived as they didn't describe themselves or self-describe as Maori until the Europeans came. Right. Before then, it was just disparate tribes mm-hmm. that were familiar with one another, but they settled. Uh, it's believed either in close together waves or like pretty much all at once, right. heading out from Polynesia, arriving and saying, "Okay, let's go to war." Pretty much, uh, the name means ordinary or common, and they were. And are tough people. Right. And the reason Maori means ordinary or common is they're referring to themselves in comparison to white Europeans who and came later. And their fancy later. pants. Right. And their knickers and their yeah. fancy hats with feathers. and Exactly. And their muskets. Yeah. So we'll that's not very ordinary, especially compared to Maori. Um, and they had a name for them, uh, Pakeha. Yes. Those were uh, white Europeans who came. Colonists, right. settlers, anybody who wasn't Maori or ordinary. Very true. Um, and like we said, they were tough. They were very fierce. Um, when they battled one of the uh, trophies that they would, and you know, a lot of tribes you'll see do this, they will put the old head on the stake uh-huh. as a trophy. Very tough. Um, and then uh, something else we'll get into in a minute is very important to them called mana, which is uh, power or prestige. And uh, there was a lot of fighting going on when the mana was uh, challenged or disrupted. Basically, sort of like, um, you insult me, so we're going go to go to war. Right, but all of this was extremely structured. Um, the Maori wars were typically held in the fall after the harvest, right? Yeah, football season. Yeah, um, that's a really good analogy. <laughs> uh, they would use weapons um, that were usually clubs. There were short-range battle clubs called wakaika. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there were clubs that had a cutting edge 
that were called patu. These are the most typical weapons used in these battles. And I, I, you would get brained and creamed and beaten up to heck. Yeah. But as far as loss of life goes, compared to firearms, there was there were relatively few. Yeah, it sort of reminded me of the old uh, gang fights back in the day. Yeah. Like when you would get together with your chains and your clubs and hit each other and fight. And, Trident. Yeah, and then you would walk away with your bruises and your scrapes and um, not a lot of loss of life. Right, but the, the intent was the same. It was sure. to vanquish people, to get control of their land, to make them move to more populated, less fertile areas. Um, and like you said, it was to gain mana or prestige yeah. for your tribe. Um, everything changed once the Europeans came and brought firearms, as is the pretty by now familiar narrative for anybody who's listened to one of our cultural, historical episodes. Yeah, it's pretty interesting that it follows about the same path all over the world. Mm-hmm. You know, the boomstick comes in, yeah. the white folks come in with the boomstick and the powder, the boom powder, and then things change. Yeah. Um, and things changed by the Maori gaining access to some of these guns. Um, and it says here, you know, they would trade things like pigs and flax and potatoes. But I watched a documentary last night mm-hmm. and six, as the documentarian said, was a big, uh, trading, uh, coinage basically. What it was? Six. What is that? S-E-X. Six. Oh, six. <laughs> gotcha. He kept saying it though, you know, in that Kiwi accent, which is, one of my favorites, by the way. I got gotcha. you. Um, and so they would trade when they ran out of other stuff to trade. You know, it was a big hot spot for Europeans, not even to settle necessarily, but to come by and do some trading and stop over. And they would stop over and they would sign their women up to like three-week contracts and trade for one musket. Mm-hmm. And it was a very sexual culture. Like women, and this was in the 1800s, could take like multiple lovers and not be looked down upon. Yeah. And it, they didn't have the hang-ups that Europe did about sex. Yeah, and I know so, the HMS Bounty was mutinied because the yeah. sailors wanted to go back to Polynesia. Well, dude, the Maori were down with it early on. They didn't have big hang-ups. Um, <laughs> hang-ups? No, they didn't. In the 70s? You could like have sex before you were married, mm-hmm. and it wasn't a big deal. Um, so the sex trade by the 1830s was the biggest uh, moneymaker in New Zealand at the or time. Or musket maker, huh? <laughs> Very nice. So, Chuck, the, when the muskets come along, um, 1807 is kind of a seminal year because this is the year when the first Maori tribe um, got their hands on muskets and used them for battle. Yeah. The problem is they hadn't practiced quite so much. And so as they're trying to fire and reload and aim, they were vanquished by the tribe they raided. With using traditional clubs. Yeah, they get clubbed in the head while they're trying to load a musket. Yeah. And I think they, some of them started just swinging the musket. Yeah. Like a big club. Which is, it makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> Especially even out of frustration. Yeah, and that actually started the musket wars. Yeah, because the leader of that tribe said, you know what, we, these firearms, we shouldn't abandon them yet. So let's get some more and we'll trade whatever we need to for them and let's practice this time. Yeah. And hence the musket wars were born. Once they got good, they started tearing up the countryside in uh, 1815 and just basically said, we've got these guns. We're going to kill you, take your land, enslave you, and... Maybe eat you. Yes. We didn't mention that. A lot of uh, Polynesian tribes, they they were accused of cannibalism. Yeah. 
I, I don't know if it's true or not. Yeah, the bear's pointing out, though. Right, sure. Um, but so, the, this first group that got the muskets yeah. like, definitely changed everything because now it was kind of like um, when the Soviets and the Americans, when the Americans had the bomb, Soviets were like, we have to have the bomb now. Right. You can't just have one country with the bomb. You couldn't have just one Maori tribe with firearms. Other groups were forced to adopt firearms as well, and hence the musket wars got pretty bloody. Yeah, but it became the great equalizer. Uh, about 20,000 Maori and New Zealanders died, but once everyone had guns, it sort of calmed things down huh. in a weird way. Yeah, well, it's like the mutual assured destruction. Exactly. So before we move on, I think it's a good time for a message break. Okay. All right, so let's continue. So, Chuck, um, the 1830s, uh, two tribes that had been forced off their land by other musket-using Maoris um, went south. I believe it was south to the Chatham Islands. Yeah, they wanted to basically find a, a better place to live where right. all this war wasn't going on, but they found the Moriori people. Right. And I don't they know said, if that's right, but... What's one more war? Exactly, because they were a peaceful people, and they were like, well, you know, these people are here. Let's figure out what to do with them. And they said... Uh, kill them. <laughs> kill them, basically. Yeah, that's what they did. They killed them, uh, thrust them into slavery, and then um, basically took over Chatham Island, and now it was a Maori island. Right, so one genocide begot another genocide. That's right. So the Maori are like pretty well established by this time, but they're kind of hanging on to their cultural lives. Um, and everything kind of hinged on a rumor. I don't know if it was a factual rumor or not, but come 1835, there was a rumor that France was going to try to annex New Zealand. Yeah, and previous... Previous to 1848, they were pretty welcoming of the Europeans. Yeah. Like, they started trading with them. They got along pretty well. Exceptional point. Even this guy in the documentary that said six (laughs) said that they were, you know, they got pretty friendly. And they said, you know, come here, uh, root down. We'll be trade partners. And we all got along great. But like you said, in 1835, that's when France started, or at least their, the Maori's point of view was France was trying to get their little French hooks in them right, for and by, good. By this time, the Maori had a pretty good idea that they were in trouble. They were losing their numbers, which they think hit about 100,000 before contact with Europeans um, to not just the musket wars, but also disease sure. introduced by Europeans. Another which, familiar uh, right. thing. Um, so they, they decided to ally themselves in the face of this rumor that France um, was going to annex New Zealand. They decided to ally their lands to the British. And why not? At the time, who else are you going to go with? Yeah, they're like, we like your powdered wigs, <laughs> yeah. your red coats. Yeah, like your accent. We can nick that and change it around a bit and make it our own. Right. And so let's sign the Treaty of Watangi. Yes. And uh, it was it was a pretty good contract at first, they thought. Um, it gave the Maori control over their own land. and Gave them sovereignty. Yeah, so they think, um, until it turns out that the British really said, you know what, we're going to take a lot of that land, we're going to tax you and violate the treaty in that way, and um, this ancestral land that's been in your family forever, we're going to we're gonna just take what we want, basically, and shuffle you to the side. Yeah, who just, knew? Just like Americans. The treaty was going to be broken. So that started the New Zealand Wars, and um, this guy in the documentary said it's sort of, again, sort of like here in America, 
they weren't really taught that so much in school or they were taught a very sanitized version mm-hmm. of the uh, New Zealand Wars, when in fact it was 30 years of very bloody, fierce battling uh, with the British uh, soldiers and the British government and um, dwindled down to 45,000 Maori yeah, by, by the 1890s. Yeah. It's really sad. So at this point, what you have is what would be called an evolutionary bottleneck, basically. Yeah. Um, you have a group, a population that's in real danger of extinction. Yeah. Um, and I guess what the Maori do is say, okay, all right, the British control New Zealand. We're not going away. Right. We are uh, fierce warriors. Have you seen these tattoos we got? Yeah. Uh, and the British said, again, we are in control of New Zealand. You just said it yourself. We won't wipe you out entirely. Because, hey, it's almost the 20th century, and who does that, right? Yeah. Um, but we are going to anglicize you. And first, let's start by creating an alphabet, which this struck me as weird, right? Maori culture had an oral tradition. They didn't have any written language. They had totems. Yeah. Basically, what amounted to, to totems yeah, is the carvings. closest comparison. Uh-huh. Um, but they didn't have any kind of alphabet or written language. And so uh, European missionaries set about creating one. Rather than teaching them just English, like, yeah. oh, well, here's your written language. Yeah, it's thought, English. That was really odd, too. They went about creating a Maori written language, which yeah. is strange to me. You know, like there's this is the 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 Maori experience. It, it's almost like a condensed version of what went on in, in North America you yeah. know, in the United States. There's like one treaty. Um, there's some weird aspects to it where like missionaries are not just trying to anglicize the groups they're helping them preserve their culture simultaneously. Right. Um, and I think that that uh, was, uh, helped Maori culture survive by taking their oral traditions and writing them down. But that's not to say the Maori were helpless in preserving their own traditions because, as we'll see, that everyone's expected to know their own history and to, to be able to recite it. Yeah, for sure. Um, and that, that came along in the 70s is when they really started to sort of gain more ground in reestablishing their culture and claiming their culture as their own. Uh, previous to that, they, it really dwindled because they, they, they scattered basically. They started to move to urban areas. Um, after World War II, there was a mass migration. Uh, prior to the war, 75% lived in rural New Zealand. Mm-hmm. And, uh, 20 years later, uh, 60% lived in urban areas. So, I mean, that's when you move the tribe from their native land, you take their land, uh-huh. and they move to the big city. It just the culture is just going to go away. Well, it gets diluted, for sure. Especially in the face of the government, um, the official language of New Zealand was English. Yeah, they try to do their best to stamp it out. There, were, yeah, there were government schools that weren't like that didn't teach anything about Maori culture. Yeah. Um. So yeah, the the culture was the people were still there, but they were losing their culture. And then, like you said, again. Uh, analogous to um, North America, yeah. the 1970s saw a uh, an awakening of pride in being a Maori, just like the a- AIM, the American Indian Movement, was founded in the 70s. Exactly. Um, uh, and in the 1980s, uh, by that time, about 20% of the Maori were actually fluent speakers of their language, which was Te Reo Maori was the name of the language. Right. So it was a big win. It was, but the... Um, the, there was a lot of groundwork that was laid between the 70s and 80s. A lot of battles that were, were fought and won. Um, there's a uh, the establishment of the uh, Maori Party, 
an, a political party. Yeah. Um, they sued the government to have T. Reo Maori, the Maori language, be officially recognized somehow. And in 1985, um, the British were forced to say, yes, this is a treasure that we were supposed to protect under the Treaty of Watangi. And we didn't. So now we're going to make this one of three official languages yeah. of New Zealand. English, New Zealand Sign Language, and uh, Te Reo Maori are now the three official languages of New Zealand. Exactly. In 1975, there was uh, the designation of Maori Language Week. Mm-hmm. And they opened the first bilingual school in 1978. So by the time 85 rolled around, they made it an official, one of the official languages. Um, like we said, about 20% were now speaking it and fluent in it. And, um, you know, the British were like, well, we'll give you these small things. But what we don't want to give you back is your land. Yeah. But they were forced to eventually uh, with the Watangi Tribunal in 1975. Yeah. It was... It's not a, I don't think it was, um, I don't think they established laws. I think it was just like you fill an uh, application out and to a claim on some land and they'll decide whether or not to give it back to your family. And they did to a large degree. Not not all of it though. So was it like a European run tribunal that like, um, that indigenous people went and petitioned or was it, was it made up of indigenous people? Because I got the impression that they were like, jealously guarded um, Maori culture and we're like suing for repatriation of Maori artifacts from other museums and well yeah that definitely happened because there were you know Maori trinkets and uh, mummified heads heads (laughs) all over the world and it's still ongoing today Um, like all these reparations are still going on like people are still getting back their land yeah even here in the 21st century so the um the Maori culture kind of is vibrant, beaten down, hangs on by a thread, and starts to revive. Right? That's right. That's good. That's where we're at. Okay. Um, let's talk a little bit about their culture. Uh, again, a lot of it was diluted and lost over time, but there's still like some very robust um, fundamentals that are very much alive today. Yeah. They're very spiritual people, even yep. though they were fierce warriors. Um and, you know, a lot of the, the white folks thought they were savages, of course. Sound yeah. familiar? Like the face uh, tattoos were very much repressed, but never went away. Exactly. Um, so they're very spiritual. They believe that um, their ancestors and other supernatural beings are always around. Um, their family and their ancestry is really, really important. Uh, their genealogy, which they called the uh, Wakapapa. Wakapapa? I went with Wakapapa. Wakapapa? Yeah. Um, that's the genealogy of the, the ancestors, um, spiritual and mythological significance. And basically, your whole spiritual existence as a person is told through the Wakapapa. And the, the face tattoos will tell that story. That's what, right. that's what it means. That's why they're not hip on non-Maori exactly. people getting these yeah. things. Brooklyn hipsters. Yeah. You're insulting like their ancestry, basically. And they're really protective of this stuff. I was reading um, about... Maori Wakapapa stories. Yeah. Uh, and how, like, if you are, like, a social services worker, like, you, you're not necessarily told to ask these questions that would be considered part of somebody's Wakapapa. Right. Like, they'll tell you if they trust you. Uh, um, yeah, and you don't just run around telling just anybody. Right. Uh, there's actually some sort of, um, I believe there's a law where Maori will tell the their Wakapapa to 
government agencies, uh-huh. but these things have to be like explicitly protected. Like now that they're being put out there on the internet and everything, they need like extra protection because these huh. things are sacred. Right. They belong to the individual because that's their history. Right. And since there wasn't anything before, like a written language, speaking it out loud is extremely sacred and, and protected. Huh. Yeah. Well, part of it too is they're, um, they're really big on learning and changing things that they did wrong. Yeah. Learning from past mistakes. So part of the Waka Papa is, it's not just like some rosy history of their family. It's also the bad, mm-hmm. because if you understand your past, you can understand your future and do better. Right. And the point of it is to keep going as far back as you can. And usually from from this article, they end at about the time your ancestors arrived to oh, New Zealand. Yeah, by canoe. Yeah. Uh, so we talked about mana a little bit, the honor and uh, prestige. Um, there are three forms of mana in the culture. It's uh, One is achieved by birth. So... Basically, what the the rank of your descendants and your ancestors, mm-hmm. um, the mana given by other people, um, which this article says they boil down to to good deeds like being recognized for what you've done. It's a pat on the back. Yeah, here's your mana. <laughs> um, and then mana of the group, which uh, is when outsiders visit, and if they leave with a uh, a good, you know. A review on Yelp for you, <laughs> right? <laughs> or TripAdvisor. These guys are so welcoming. Then that's mana of the group. Yeah, and it's very important to them. You know, they want to have a good, uh, leave a good impression. I guess. Well, yeah. There's mana at stake. Exactly. Um, you can also be affected by Correo. Corre- this one's tough. Correo. Yeah. K o r e r o, which is the spoken word, um, which is. <clears throat> where your you gain mana by how people speak of you personally, I guess. Yeah, I think it's kind of like mana of the group, but for an individual. Yeah, and uh, you mentioned earlier how they had an oral history. Um, that of course the the white Christian uh, missionaries poo pooed. They said, "No, you got to write stuff down." And they said, "No, we're not just like telling stories here. We actually like historians are trained, and uh, their memory is trained to remember." everything about the history. So it wasn't just like, hey, let's just tell stories about our past. Like historians were revered and very important. Right. And, and uh, acknowledged for their like incredible memories. Right. So coming up next, we've got to have a little message break, but we're going to talk about what I think is one of the coolest things, which is the Hakka dance. Ooh, that's something big, huh? Yeah. Well, well, let's let's get back to it. All right. The Hakka dance. Have you seen this? <laughs> I have. Um, I saw in uh, Budapest of all places. Really? At a natural history museum, there was a, a like a, basically a grass outfit, and um, like there was video of a guy wearing this grass outfit doing a haka dance by himself. Yeah. Huh. It was like a ethnographical footage. Oh, see, I've never seen it um, with a like a solo dancer. I've usually just seen it as a big group, like a whole tribe. Uh-huh. And um, it's really cool. Like you should look it up on on the YouTube. H A K A. Um, very. In fact, they're doing it in the picture right there. Very yeah. uh, like intimidating. They would do it before battle, and it's kind of scary. And like when they first get started, before they're even moving uh, in unison, they're just like individually shouting out things and sticking out their tongue, and their eyes are wide and crazy. And it's just like it's. It would have sent me running for the hills. Right. Well, that's what it was intended to. Um, and the New Zealand national rugby team, the All Blacks, 
they do a haka before every rugby game. Yeah, they still do it. For, they've done it for more than 100 years, I think starting in 1888. Yeah, and they got the name the All Blacks when they changed uniforms to All Black Uniforms. Makes sense. And um, again, to intimidate, and I, I even watched the rugby team do it, and um, it's pretty cool. Yeah. Like, I, I would like to try it out, but I think I would just, people would laugh at me. Let's, let's talk. <laughs> if I wouldn't intimidate anyone right. with my haka. Especially if you, like, bulge your eyes and stuck your tongue out, too. <laughs> yeah. It wouldn't, wouldn't have the same effect. Nope. Let's talk, uh, let's talk Chuck. The tattoo? Yeah. <laughs> uh, that is actually from the Polynesian word, uh, T-A-T-A-U, tatau, I guess. And, um. Which means to mark. Yeah, and they, we need to do one on the whole, uh, tattoo thing. We will. Um. And like we said, the Maori aren't the first to come up with tattoos. You can it's traced back further in their Polynesian lineage, but they are the ones that use chisels, really sharp chisels, but chisels nonetheless. Yeah, I, need, I wonder how that works. Uh, it's like you hammer in. <laughs> no, I know how a chisel works, but and then you rub the pigment in. So basically, you take a very sharp chisel and a hammer, and you tap how, in. How do you, you get make any, a like, mark, and uh, then after you've made your marks, you go through and rub a pigment, usually taken from a certain type of caterpillar. Yeah. And then the since you, you've you used a chisel instead of a needle, there's not only a tattoo, but there's also scarification along where you made that chisel mark. Yeah. So the original Maori uh, tomokos were like, they were pretty severe looking. They looked even more like hardcore than a regular tattoo. Well, that's what I was going to ask is how like, uh, how tight was it, you know? I think I have the feeling that like this was like considered an art form. It was pretty yeah. tight. All right. Well, I know they, uh, incidentally, um, are the ones who introduce color tattoos. Mm-hmm. Um, even though most of the mocha I've seen are black. So I don't know if they just, uh, don't use color that much. They like, yeah, I haven't seen it. any colored one either, but they did I like a, the same thing. you know, a rainbow dolphin and then like, Eh. <laughs> Let's just go back to the moco. Yeah. Um, men typically have the moco on their face, um, but women also have the tattoos, mm-hmm. and um, they have them on the arms, the thighs, the abdomen, and the crotch, apparently, uh, while men will have them on the face, buttocks, and thighs. And it's detailed stuff. Like, I'm sure you've seen it before. Um, but if not, look it up right now because it's not like Mike Tyson. Right. Well, it has like to an be an entire detailed. face. Yeah. I mean, it's there. It, it's supposed to depict the Waka Papa. Like each swirl and symbol has like a, a real meaning that has to do with the person's genealogy. That's right. It's pretty cool. Um, and then again, we said that there's another kind of tattoo that's not quite as intricate. That's called the, um, oh, what is it called? The Kiratuhi? Yeah. Yeah. Which yeah. is just fun to say. And I think that won't offend no. a Maori person. And and uh, I think part the impression that I have is Maori culture, from this resurgence of Maori pride in the 70s and the um, revival of the, the culture and say, uh, like taking steps to save it, yeah. like they do very jealously protect and guard their culture, their cultural history, their personal lineage. Um, and so it is, I mean, maybe even compared to other indigenous tribes, respecting Maori culture on its own terms is a good idea. For sure. Uh, these days, they've made quite a comeback in population. Um, New Zealand as a whole has more than 4 million people and about 14% are Maori, uh, compared to a low of about 45,000 in the 1890s. Yeah, it's about 560,000 people. Um, but like I said, there are, like many marginalized indigenous tribes all over the world, there are 
problems with uh, alcoholism. Um, the Maori are 82% as far as uh, more likely to be drinkers than uh, 56% Pacific Islanders. And among those who consume alcohol, hazardous drinking occurs in 36% of Maori. Um, and crime, too, and violence is still sort of part of the culture, sadly. Um, I think I have some stats here from a criminologist. Uh, even though they only make up 14% of the population, I believe um, they make up about 50% of people in prison. Wow. And they, you know, they throw that right back to the fact that they were marginalized and their culture was stamped out. And sure. uh, young people are more likely to be violent, uh, young Maori are, than, than older ones now. But, um, yeah, apparently the losing your cultural identity will really put a, you know, hamper on your yeah. evolution as a people. Yeah. I mean, you can see that all over the world, can't you? You certainly can. Um, so that's Maori. If you want to know more, do you have anything else right now? I got nothing else. If you want to know more about the Maori people, you can type in M-A-O-R-I in the search bar at HowStuffWorks.com. It will bring up this article. And since I said Maori, it's time, Chuck, for listener mail. I'm going to call this email from a uh, student at North Carolina Wilmington. Okay. <laughs> uh, hey, guys. Uh, he's an econ dude. Okay. Uh, my girlfriend and I have been together for a little over three years and are both members of the Stuff You Should Know Army. Nice. Uh, in the early days of our relationship, I used to pay her in doll hairs for favors, such as cooking dinner or getting out of bed to plug my phone in when I forgot. I do this, too. I tell Emily, like, I'll give you $675 to take out the trash. And I'll just make up, you know, we keep a running tab of what we owe each other. Gotcha. It's just fun. He uses doll hairs. Uh, being that a doll hair is not real currency, that's why he uses it. Um, I could bid the price up or down with ease, depending on her mood. The going rate for dinner was about 12,000 doll hairs, and a back rub was 21,500 DH, capital DH. <laughs> um, of course, she was quickly, uh, she quickly figured out that she was not accruing the American dollar she thought she was and wanted her doll hairs exchanged for U.S. currency. To get myself out of this, I quickly got on eBay to purchase her 600,000 Zimbabwe dollars to fulfill my financial debt obligation. Uh, like you, I appreciated the novelty of owning paper currency from a country that saw hyperinflation on a scale the world has never seen. We both got a real laugh out of a joke, and I am out of debt now. We both now carry $100,000 in our wallets every day, so we don't feel like broke college kids. Nice. Um, economic research is a great passion of mine, from observation to data collection and model building. I find happiness through math and statistics. We don't have much in common, Talon. <laughs> Um, Talon? That's his name. Nice. I would be more than happy to help you all with any economic questions you ever have, although I don't think you need much, seeing as how you, your super stuff guide to the economy was so well pre uh, presented. Awesome. Yeah, so that is from Talon Wisdom. His last name is Wisdom. Man. From UNC Wilmington. And uh, I wrote him back, and he followed up and said uh, he was in the middle of writing a lesson plan and eating leftovers when he got my email, and he said he's often daydreamed about being on listener mail. Wow. So this is a dream come true. And you're going to like this part, Josh. Okay. He has a dog named Conway Twitty. <laughs> Conway Twitty, owned by Talon Wisdom. That's right. Uh, and he, he and Conway Twitty called his entire family to let them know uh, to look out for the upcoming listener mail. Good going. Thank you, Talon Wisdom. Talon Wisdom, Conway Twitty, and um, his girlfriend? Yeah. 
He's got a lot of doll hairs. Who, who is very easygoing with a good sense of humor about money. Uh, if you have a good story for us that has anything even remotely to do with something we've even mentioned in passing on any of the episodes here on Stuff You Should Know, uh, you can tweet to us at SYSK Podcast. You can join us on Facebook.com slash Stuff You Should Know. You can send us an email to stuffpodcasts at discovery.com. And you can hang out on our website with us. That's stuffyoushouldknow.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Brought to you by the all-new 2014 Toyota Corolla. 